Welcome to the new episode of American Hauntings and the second part of one of our weirdest episodes ever. As always, they're hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. And we're taking you back in time for Holly Weird and a look at LA's strangest cults. This episode and the one before it are a little off the beaten path of taking you behind the locked doors and down the dirty back alleys of Hollywood, the movie capital of the world. A place that's supposed to be all about palm trees, swimming pools, and movie stars. Until, of course, it isn't. LA is the city of angels, but the only angels around here have been beaten up and abused by murderers, cranks, kooks, lunatics, and killers. And yes, this episode will combine all of those things. If you want to hear the first episode on Hollywood cults, you just have to go back two weeks to episode 85. But if this is the first American Hauntings podcast you've listened to, you can go back to episode 70 and start this season from there. And you'll do it if you know what's good for you. Anyway, just remember that all the episodes in this season are definitely not suitable for all listeners. If you continue on from here, you can't ever say we didn't warn you. So turn up the volume, grab that shovel over there, and well, I've got a hole I need you to dig in your crawl space. What's it for? Don't worry about it. You'll see soon. On October 7, 1929, the body of a 16-year-old girl named Willa Rhodes was found buried beneath her adopted parents' home in Los Angeles. She hadn't been murdered. Willa had died from an infection, but the circumstances of her illegal burial were what caught the attention of the authorities. Willa had died three years earlier, but her parents had come to believe that she could be brought back to life. Willa's body was mummified with ice, salt, and spices and had been buried under the floorboards of the house with the bodies of seven dogs that were supposed to ensure her resurrection. You see, Mr. and Mrs. Rhodes were part of what would become one of the most notorious and terrifying L.A. cults of the 1920s. In our last episode, we delved into the many cults that existed in Southern California in the early years of the 20th century. People came to California looking for a new life, a change from everything they once knew. And there were plenty of con artists and so-called religious leaders who followed them to the land of sunshine, wanting to take their money and, well, sometimes their lives. And it was into this fertile field that May Otis Blackburn sowed the seeds that became the divine order of the royal arms of the Great Eleven. It was a cult that was inspired by a single verse in the biblical book of Revelation, 11.3 to be precise, and the quote says, And I will grant my two witnesses power to prophesy for 1,260 days. The two that the cult believed were predicted in the verse were a mother, May Otis Blackburn, and her daughter Ruth. And they would use religion, sex, and greed to separate their believers from their money while they waited for the return of their Messiah and a change that would come for the whole earth. Now, the story of the cult began in 1922 in L.A.'s Bunker Hill area, when May and Ruth began to receive revelations they claimed came directly from the angels Gabriel and Michael. They were, May said, dictating a book to them that would reveal all the secrets of the universe. When the book was completed, the seventh seal would open and an apocalyptic event would occur on Earth. The book would be called The Seventh Trumpet of Gabriel, although May later changed it to the slightly different The Great Sixth Seal. 
Now, around these announcements, May and Ruth formed a religious group that they called the Divine Order of the Royal Arms of the Great Eleven, or what the newspapers later called the Blackburn Cult. The Great Eleven referred to the proclamation by May that after the apocalypse, the world that remained would be ruled by 11 queens from mansions located on Olive Hill in Hollywood. Believe it or not, this nuttiness attracted a lot of people. May and Ruth garnered many followers and demanded tributes of money and property from them so they could finance and continue their so-called great work. And you'll be shocked to learn, well, you won't be shocked, to learn that the book never came out, but it didn't matter. Within 10 years, the Blackburn cult had spun out of control, plagued by rumors of strange happenings and strange deaths. But that's not how things started out. May Otis never planned to start a cult. She just wanted to be married and happy, but nothing ever seemed to work out right. After enduring deaths and divorces, she finally had someone who would never leave her in 1889, her daughter Ruth, a pretty child that May immediately tried to get involved in show business. But that cost money, and May spent years fleecing men and blackmailing them, all to make sure that she and Ruth survived. In 1909, they were living in Portland, Oregon. The pretty, brown-eyed Ruth was a born entertainer and started acting at age 11. In 1917, she won a citywide contest and was named Prettiest Girl in Portland. The prize allowed her to be cast in a silent film called A Nugget in the Rough, the first motion picture ever made in Portland. And then more movie roles followed, all produced by a local company called the Starlight Film Company. Its owner, her mother May. The films, as well as a new home and a car, had all been financed by May's blackmail schemes. Things were starting to heat up for her in Portland, so she decided that Ruth needed to go someplace where she could really become a star, Hollywood. They sold everything and moved to LA in 1918. May still wanted to be a movie producer and Ruth still wanted to be a star, but they found it was a little tougher to buy their way into a real film career. May found no one to hire her and began spending most of her days sulking in the house that she and Ruth shared. For hours every day, she did nothing but read the Bible. Ruth, however, did land a few jobs as an extra, but not enough to earn any real money. She decided to make some extra income working as both a taxi dancer and an oriental dancer. In the 1920s, a taxi dancer was a girl who hung around clubs and danced with men for money. Uh, you can guess what an oriental dancer did. Later that year, Ruth met her first husband, Edgar Rickenbaugh, a 22-year-old railroad clerk from Altoona, Pennsylvania. They were married on May 27, 1919 and began sharing an apartment with May. Ruth continued to work as a dancer while May stayed at home and read her Bible. By 1921, though, Ruth's marriage was on the rocks. It was inevitable, really. Her husband was a jealous man known for physical altercations, and his Ruth was paid to dance with and for other men. After some contentious arguments, the two agreed to a divorce. Well, in 1922, Ruth met a young Indiana man named Arthur Carl Osborne. A likable young man, he was smitten with Ruth, and while they went on some dates, she was never serious about him. She did, however, write him many letters, and he would be the first person to whom Ruth revealed that she and her mother were working on a book that would literally, quote, make the world stand still because it was being dictated to them by angels. The book, Ruth told him, would explain the origins of the universe, the purpose of man's existence, the nature of God, and how to find hidden treasure for which only the lost measurements of Solomon were required. The book will be called The Great Sixth Seal. 
Most of what the Bible contained was metaphorical, she said, and their book would explain everything. Arthur was too infatuated with the beautiful dancer to doubt anything she told him and so in love with her that he begged her to stop dancing, but Ruth refused. She couldn't afford it. They had a book to finish, but if Arthur knew anyone who might lend her some money, she could quit dancing and devote all her time to the book. The book would sell hundreds of millions of copies, she assured him, so whatever money Arthur borrowed would be repaid many times over once the book was published. Well, Arthur considered this and suggested that his employer might give him a loan, if he promised to pay it back quickly, that is. But soon after floating the idea, he had second thoughts and began to avoid Ruth. He even stopped writing to her. Sensing his change of heart, though, Ruth wrote to encourage him, promising him a reward that would make him very happy. Well, that was all it took. Arthur borrowed some money and gave it to Ruth. He was deliriously happy, but wouldn't stay that way for long. Soon after she stopped dancing, Ruth told Arthur that she and her mother had been commanded to start a new religious order that would be based on the book's teachings. This would, of course, require even more money. The two women had no choice but to obey this divine command, so it looked like Ruth would have to start dancing again with other men, she stressed, unless Arthur might be able to provide a little more financial assistance. Well, Arthur did. He gave Ruth every bit of cash he could earn or borrow, adding up to about $150. Unfortunately, a few months later, when it was time to repay the loan, the great book was still not finished. Ruth had been telling him it would be, quote, just a few more weeks for two months. As more time passed, Arthur was told that he had to pay back the loans or he'd be fired. Arthur's father was aware of his son's predicament and went to Ruth and May's house to demand that Ruth pay the money back she'd borrowed. Well, May met the man at the door and a heated argument occurred. Eventually the man left, but May was still furious. She telephoned Arthur's mother and threatened to kill Arthur if he or his father kept pestering Ruth for money she didn't have. Arthur downplayed the threat, saying May was only kidding, but she probably wasn't. Arthur was fired from his job and was now in debt. The relationship that Ruth had promised him was over. The broken-hearted young man went to the nearest army recruiting station and enlisted. Before he left for boot camp, he stopped by Ruth's house one last time, but it was empty. The two women were gone. May and Ruth had returned to Portland, a place where they had family, friends, and contacts, the perfect candidates for their new religious movement's first followers. Among the first converts were William, Matilda, and Ward Blackburn, who were May's mother, stepfather, and stepbrother, and May and Ruth moved into their home to fine-tune the lunacy that would become the theology of the cult. Now, I'm not going to get into this in detail because this, it's insane. But basically, it's about rewriting the Bible, fourth dimensions, the tree of life, how Adam and Eve knocked the universe out of whack, and how mankind, led by May and Ruth, of course, could fix it. They were in charge of finding followers for their divine mission. Not only would cult members live forever, but he or she could learn about those pesky lost measurements of Solomon, which could be used to find hidden deposits of gold and other precious metals. Once humanity was set right, a divine order of the royal arms of the Great Eleven would be established. It would be a spiritual family consisting of May, Ruth, and nine other women, all of whom would rule the world as queens. 
Marble palaces would be erected for them on Olive Hill in Hollywood, and the queens would be given a hoard of gold and diamonds that were hidden somewhere underground near Bakersfield. Oh, man. The queens would not be lonely either. The angel Gabriel would designate 11 kings of every queen, a harem that may or may not have included the current husbands of the designated women. Well, May's announcement, and I can't even begin to guess how she thought all this up, likely made many of those who heard it roll their eyes in disbelief, but a surprising number of people were receptive to her teachings. At the start of the movement, she was able to boast about 70 to 100 followers. They came from all over Portland and then Southern California and came from every walk of life. For the most part, they were ordinary people who became entranced by the message that May and Ruth had started spreading. Many of them admitted they had no idea what Ruth was talking about with her weird beliefs. They just trusted that she knew what she was doing, which says a lot about the power of May's personality or maybe their own desperation, who knows. Before May and Ruth returned to Hollywood, May got married to her stepbrother, Ward Blackburn. Now, if that's not creepy enough for you, it gets better. Ward groomed himself in a style of the time known as the, quote, Oriental mystic. Greased back hair, eyebrows trimmed to thin lines, and a Fu Manchu mustache that dropped below his jawline. He was also known for having five-inch fingernails. Aside from that, he was a smelly, sloppy man who wore the same clothing, usually a brown, ill-fitting suit, for days at a time. He was never considered particularly smart nor ambitious, and a former classmate of his once called him, quote, a subnormal child with many queer traits not seen in other boys. I should also mention Ward was a pedophile. Now, these are not ideal traits in a new husband, but then May had her own issues. She was 20 years older than Ward, semi-delusional and self-absorbed, and had a phobia about being touched. No one but Ruth was ever allowed to come into physical contact with her, but that was fine. Ward had little interest in a sexual relationship with her anyway. He liked his females to be much, much younger. And in a twisted way, they were perfect for each other. Ward's low intelligence and a lack of ambition worked well with May's megalomania. There would be no clashes of ego and no marital spats. May was mother, a witness chosen by God, and Ward obeyed her without question. As far as Ward's sexual issues went, some have implied that perhaps May shared them. Her fascination with the child queens that ended up in the cult suggests she had issues of her own. One time, May approached a mother and daughter at a store, and May asked the woman to give her her daughter. She promised to dress the beautiful little girl like an angel. Well, the horrified woman obviously refused, but after that, living in fear that the high priestess might try and kidnap her child. In another report, May's car was stopped in front of a Simi Valley house where a child was playing in the front yard. Her driver got out and moved toward the child, but fortunately, a neighbor with a gun appeared and chased him away. May and Ward were married on January 11, 1924 in Santa Ana, California. When applying for a marriage license, May identified herself as Mamie Holmes and claimed to be 30 years old. She was actually in her 40s and her name wasn't Mamie, but misrepresentations aside, she received the name from Ward that she would keep for the rest of her life and which she would make infamous. She was now May Otis Blackburn, priestess of the Blackburn cult.
In the spring of 1924, they returned to Los Angeles. They moved into a house that became their small, cramped, temporary headquarters. The grade 11 was still young, but it was starting to grow. Ruth started looking for her own new husband and found a 17-year-old Italian from Chicago named Samuel Rizzio. May was now 24. Sam came from a large family with a interesting history. Back in Chicago, they'd crossed paths with organized crime and fled to California. Sam also had a criminal history. He was only 17, but he'd spent nine months of that 17 years at the California State Reformatory for what were known as check irregularities. He also had, Ruth later claimed, a bad temper and a propensity for violence. But Ruth loved a bad boy and found herself attracted to him. On May 24th, 1924, they were married. Meanwhile, May was getting frustrated. The house they were in was too small for her needs, and she wanted to increase both the size and stature of the divine order. She couldn't do that with her current congregation, which was mostly made up of down-on-their-luck blue-collar workers. She needed to recruit some people with real money, and to do that, she needed a proper front for her operation. She eventually found the perfect place in the upscale Wilshire district. It was a large three-story, 10-room home that was owned by Rudolf Frederick Vogel, a 48-year-old real estate millionaire. It was his wife, Edna, who agreed to rent the house to May. The ink was still wet on the lease agreement when May started violating it by converting the house into an apartment building to house her grade 11 disciples. It became the cult's new headquarters. Now, not much is known about what happened behind the walls of the house after the cult moved in, but neighbors frequently complained about loud, quote, elaborate sessions that went on until the early morning hours. Around this same time, Ward and William Blackburn opened a small office building on South Olive Street where they established a printing company. By August, the seventh trumpet of Gabriel began rolling off the press. Now, this was not the great book promised by May and Ruth. This was an eight-page pamphlet. And it was through this pamphlet that May shared with a baffled public her insights into the universe. That the seventh trumpet was a pamphlet must have come as a surprise to May's followers who believed it was going to be the book that would bring about the apocalypse, eternal life, and wealth beyond measure. However, May explained the book was still coming. They were just waiting on the angels to finish it. Well, believe it or not, May's followers accepted her story and continued to be faithful. She had a magnetic personality and was filled with promises of future rewards. She also intimated that God would punish anyone who left the order. The punishment could take many forms, she said, but almost certainly they'd be fatal. So everyone decided to stay, <laughs> just in case. Ruth and Sam had been married only two months before they started having serious problems. It's easy to understand why. Sam was eight years younger than his wife, who was by then a queen of the great 11 and treated with reverence by everyone around her, except for her husband. He was a permanent guest of the order with no real importance. He'd been assigned to work next to William and Ward at the cult's printing press, but no, no one knew what else to do with him. Sam was unwilling to participate in the rituals of the Great Eleven. He was tired of the closed-door sessions where Ruth and May supposedly took dictation from an angel. He tried to convince Ruth to abandon the cult and move out of the headquarters, but she refused. Ruth was a witness, a prophetess, a priestess, and a queen of the Great Eleven. To abandon this role for an ex-convict with anger problems, well, that was unthinkable. By July 1924, things were ugly. Sam allegedly struck Ruth on the side of the head during an argument, cutting her eyelid open. 
Sam left the house, and when he tried to return, he was stopped by May and several other cult members. The infuriated young man stormed away from the house. Five years later, Ruth would say, he left, and, well, I haven't seen him since. And there may have been some truth to that, or maybe not. The argument with Sam, him striking her and him being thrown out of the house may have happened just as Ruth said it did. But what happened before and after his disappearance is, well, it's a bit more complicated. One of the members of the Blackburn cult was a druggist named Eleanor Sandrosky. According to her later story, May Blackburn came into her drugstore on the first Sunday of July, 1924. May asked her to come to the cult's headquarters as soon as possible on an urgent matter. Eleanor, concerned, did so. When she arrived, she was led upstairs and found herself in a room with May, Matilda, and William Blackburn, but not Ruth. She was told that May had received a new and disturbing revelation from the angel Gabriel. According to May, Gabriel had told her that she was supposed to kill Sam Rizzio and that he commanded Eleanor to give her the poison with which to do it. But don't worry, she assured Eleanor. Once he's dead, he'll come back to life. May would resurrect him as soon as she published The Great Sixth Seal. Well, Eleanor left the house in a state of shock and spent the next few days hoping that another angel might appear to May and call off the murder, but it didn't work out that way. A short time later, May again approached Eleanor and asked for poison. This time, though, she said she did not intend to kill Sam. She was simply requiring him to go through a ritual that would, quote, rid him of another belief that prevented him from accepting his concord in the Great Eleven. During the ritual, which would take place on a beach in Santa Monica, Sam would be dressed in ceremonial robes and would perform a whirling dervish on the sand that had been sprinkled with poison while chanting, I am a dead priest. No matter what else you think, you have to give May credit for her imagination. Anyway, Sam would only symbolically die. It would not be the real thing. May just needed some kind of poison that would leave no trace for the ritual. The angel said that it had to be deadly, and he'd added that if Eleanor told a soul about it, her, quote, bones would crumble and she would drop in a heap. Eleanor, terrified, agreed to provide the poison. When she left, May said that she would have a messenger come to the drugstore and pick it up. By the time Eleanor got home, she was upset and angry. She believed that May was lying to her about the ceremony, and her husband, Simon, agreed. In fact, he'd already decided that May was a fraud and told his wife they should demand the $750 back that they had donated to the cult when they joined. A few days later, Eleanor met May at the cult's headquarters and told her what her husband had said, adding that neither he nor she believed in May's promises anymore. She said that if their money was not returned, they would go to the district attorney and expose her. Well, May flew into a fit of rage, demanding that Eleanor leave her husband and threatened that if Simon went to the district attorney, he would, quote, drop dead before anything happened. While Eleanor fled, she had no intention of leaving her husband and knew that no real case would be made against May of the Great Eleven. May would just deny the charges and then maybe an angel would tell Bay to kill the Sandroskis next. Well, the next day, a messenger walked into the pharmacy and told Eleanor she was there to pick up the poison along with a bottle of chloroform. Eleanor gave her the chloroform, which was perfectly legal at the time, but instead of poison, gave her a bottle of colored water. The next day, Eleanor and Simon quit the cult. In 1930, the messenger, whose name was Mary Stewart, 
told the authorities that she knew Eleanor had given her colored water, not poison, but she didn't care. No one intended to kill Sam, and the ceremony went on that evening just as planned. It happened just the way that May had described it with the colored water, not poison, she stressed, being poured into the sand. The ceremony had lasted only minutes, and when it was over, Sam had driven them all home. May denied that she had ever been ordered by an angel to kill her son-in-law. Now, there would never be any way for the police to determine the validity of Mary Stewart's story. By then, the bottle of liquid, whether it was colored water or poison, was gone forever. And so was Sam Rizzio. Though the large home where May had been living served wonderfully as a headquarters for the cult, May grew tired of living there. In October 1924, she moved into a new home that was closed to the mansion owned by one of her newest followers, an oil man named Clifford Dabney. Dabney was not a millionaire, as so many in the Southern California oil business were at the time, but his uncle was. And his uncle had tasked Clifford with finding new oil fields in which to drill. It was hard work, but promised tremendous wealth if he found the right places. And this would eventually lead him to May Blackburn. In November 1924, Clifford and his wife Alice were introduced to May. Dabney, a 33-year-old, well-dressed and conventionally handsome man, had a surprising number of unconventional interests, especially when it came to the occult. So he was not shocked by the stories he heard about May and her cult. He'd heard about the group's planned publications of the Great Sixth Seal, and he asked May exactly what the book would do. Well, it would explain all life's mysteries, she told him, offering her usual reply. But knowing her audience, she added that it would reveal where precious jewels and minerals were hidden, including oil. It would restore the lost measurements of Solomon and bring youth, happiness, wealth, and eternal life to all members of the Great Eleven. Well, Clifford wanted to know when the book would be published and if he, as a member of the cult, would be able to obtain a copy. Well, May told him that she was merely dictating the book, not writing it, but it appeared that the solar system would be in the right condition for publication in February 1925. With a date like that right around the corner, Clifford weighed the risks and decided to gamble that May had an insight that no one else had. He and Alice joined the Great Eleven and donated $5,000 toward the publication of The Great Sixth Seal. A few days later, the Dabneys met with May and Ruth to receive their concords, their their secret names within the cult, and they were told that would require another donation of $500, which Clifford Dabney paid in cash. In November 1924, the Rhodes family, William, Martha, and Willa, originally from the Portland area and interested in the cult, followed the Blackburns to Los Angeles. William was a skilled carpenter who had operated a successful sawmill in Portland, built a church, and engaged in civic activities. Martha was known as a deeply religious woman who had served as a Christian science camp welfare worker during the Great War. On the surface, they seemed to be completely respectable and sane, but stories told about them made some people uneasy. It was said that the couple once had a son who died when he was nine, and the Rhodeses had denied him a traditional church burial. They chose instead to have him buried in their front yard in what some said was an odd ritualistic fashion. Some neighbors believed the Rhodes, specifically Martha, had started a cult in the county. Little was known about it except that it was supposed to be a faith healing cult. But Martha was doing more than healing the sick. She also raised the dead, or 
so she claimed. She was said to have returned people to life at least five different times. Whether crazy or a pathological liar, it didn't matter. People were afraid of Martha Rhodes. Even though William had always had a good reputation and admitted that he was lacking in enthusiasm for Martha's schemes, he was a devoted husband who was willing to follow his wife into whatever strange predicament she might lead him. And wherever he went, their adopted daughter, Willa, came with him. Martha first met May in 1922, and when she did, she introduced Willa to her. May showed exceptional interest in the young woman and was so taken by her that she elevated her to an honorary leadership position, dubbing her a priestess and one of the queens of the Great Eleven. Well, William Rhodes was reluctant to move to L.A., but his wife was anxious to take a more active role in the Great Eleven, and he was always happy to please her. Willa also wanted to go. May had been pressuring her to come to Los Angeles and take her place among the other 10 queens of the Great Eleven. After they arrived, the family moved into one of the apartments at the cult's headquarters. They had only just unpacked when Matilda Blackburn came to call. She brought with her seven puppies, a gift for Willa. The young woman was thrilled, and Willa settled into a happy life in Los Angeles. She lived in what she considered a fancy home in a nice area of the city. The weather was always beautiful and she had a lot to occupy her time, but she also knew that her life would only be perfect when the great sixth seal was published and she could take her throne in Hollywood. But Willa's almost perfect life was about to come crashing to an end. On Christmas Day, 1924, Willa became ill from an ulcerated tooth. A visit to a doctor or dentist at this point likely would have prevented what was to come, but There was no possibility that Martha, who believed in healing by thoughts and prayers, would allow it. She spent the next five days trying to correct the wrongful belief that was causing Willa's illness. While her attempts failed, Willa got sicker. Her condition deteriorated until the infection caused her throat to constrict. She was in horrible pain. As her fever rose, her face became swollen and the infection seeped into her bloodstream. Baffled by her failure to cure her daughter, Martha decided that Willa's death was preordained. She assured Willa that all would be well. She would be resurrected, as was promised in the Great Sixth Seal. Well, Willa was confused by this at first. She was, after all, half out of her mind in pain. But eventually, she accepted the inevitability of her death and her resurrection. On December 31st, though, Willa suddenly started feeling better. She got out of bed for the first time in nearly a week and got dressed. Hopes were high that the worst was over. It seemed that the faith of the cult members had saved the Great Eleven's youngest queen. But it didn't last. On New Year's Day, Willa suffered a relapse and returned to her sickbed. Some of the cult members begged her mother to allow them to bring a doctor, but Martha refused. Later that afternoon, with her parents, friends, and fellow followers around her, Willa died. Despite her assurances to her daughter that she would be resurrected when the Great Sixth Seal was published, Martha actually made a few attempts to revive her right away. She had raised the dead before, she believed, and had no reason to think she couldn't do it again. Well, needless to say, it didn't work. May was at home when she received the news of Willa's passing. Unaware the girl's condition had deteriorated so quickly, she rushed to the cult's headquarters where she met Ruth. They both hurried to the dead girl's bedside, overcome with grief. It was then when Willa's parents asked May what to do with their daughter's body. Should she be buried or cremated? But May shook her head. God had sent her a message, and she would return soon. 
May came back in two hours and announced that the angels Gabriel and Michael had told her that Willow would live again. If the cult turned her body over to the authorities, it would be dissected, which would prevent a bodily resurrection, and that couldn't be allowed to happen. The bad news, May explained, was that the resurrection would not occur until after the publication of the Great Six Seal. Until that time, Willa had to be hidden away. Well, first, the body was moved to the Blackburn house. The corpse was wrapped in a blanket, quietly taken outside, and was placed in May's car. It was propped upright between two unnamed people and driven away. At May's house, the body was brought into the bathroom where it was placed in a tub filled with ice. Salt was poured on the ice around the body, but care was taken so that none of the salt touched it. May then announced that Willa's pet dogs had to be killed and placed next to her body. She explained that the puppies were the hinges to Willa's heart and must accompany her in life and death. The dogs were either chloroformed or poisoned, accounts vary, but all were killed and placed in the icy bathtub with Willa's body. Willa's corpse was later moved to a bedroom that had been specially prepared for her as a sleeping chamber so that she would find herself in pleasant surroundings when she woke up. May had fresh flowers brought to the room each day until May 1925. By then, Willa had been dead for five months. That was when May announced that she was moving her home and the cult's headquarters to Santa Monica. The cult's new headquarters were in Ocean Park in Santa Monica and had been donated by Mary Stewart, the wealthy cult member who had picked up the colored water at the drugstore around the time Sam Rizzio disappeared. She also signed over a house around the corner for May's private use. Willa's body, though, posed a problem. May was trying to keep Willa's death a secret from most of the cult. It looked bad when one of the so-called queens could so easily die. Well, it's likely that more of them knew about Willa's death than May thought, but she was determined to conceal the body inside the new cult headquarters. Before everyone else moved in, May decided that a secret compartment could be built at the rear of the house. The hidden room would be large enough to accommodate a container that would be filled with ice and Willa's body. William Rhodes built two cedar coffins, one for Willa and one for the seven dogs. Both were lined with copper, essentially turning them into a cooler, and he soldered the joints so they wouldn't leak. The bodies were moved without incident and hidden away in the secret chamber. It was a dismal place, though. The room at May's home had been perfumed with flowers and filled with sunshine. The new tomb had no windows, no light, and little air. But Willa wouldn't stay there for long. Things were strange, but guess what, guys? They're just about to get even stranger. A few months later, May instructed William and Martha Rhodes to buy a two-bedroom cottage on Marco Place in Venice. In February 1926, she told them the angels told her that Willa's body needed to be moved again. This must have been both good news and bad news to William and Martha. It suggested that an immediate resurrection of their daughter was not going to happen, but at least it also meant that Willa would be decently buried. Well, sort of. William and another man, Floyd Miller, began digging a burial chamber beneath the floor of one of the cottage's bedrooms. They spent two days digging holes large enough for the two coffins. They were placed under the floor with the lids removed so that Willa could escape when the time came for her return. After that, they installed a trapdoor to grant the Rhodes' access to the burial chamber or, of course, as a way for Willa to get out. While this work was being completed, Martha went to the city drug company pharmacy and presented the druggist J.J. Freeman with a torn page from an old book that contained, quote, an unusual formula for embalming the dead. 
Martha spent $26 buying a variety of herbs, spices, and ointments that would create the formula on the page. Ingredients in hand, she returned home and began preparing Willa's body for burial. She applied the mixture, but did nothing to preserve her body's internal organs. The corpse was then placed into the coffin, but was not laid on its back, as would be expected. Instead, the corpse was placed with its knees drawn up to the chest and its hands crossed. The puppies were wrapped in white sheets and placed in the other coffin. On February 10, 1926, the trapdoor was closed. Rites were performed, but what they were remains a mystery. Martha later stated, quote, We buried Willa and the seven dogs there with the rites that I believe are called for in the seven symbols of the sounds of Gabriel's trumpet and the sixth seal, whatever the hell that means. For three years, Martha and William lived in the cottage, sleeping each night above the slowly decaying remains of their daughter and a coffin filled with poisoned puppies. By 1926, the Great Eleven was able to boast more than 100 local members. This began causing a housing shortage because many of these members expected May to provide them with someplace to live. She began moving them around, putting them in houses in Santa Monica and all over LA. But spreading them out made things more difficult for her to manage, which was a large problem for someone who needed to be in control as badly as May did. May also began to worry about public scrutiny. To maintain a harmonious relationship with the universe, the Great Eleven often held outdoor rituals. Conducted at night, they frequently included animal sacrifices, burials, and exhumations. Curious neighbors often complained about these activities and threatened to call the police. And after the disappearances of Sam Rizzo and the death of Willa Rhodes, May was not anxious to have an encounter with the law. With this in mind, she decided to establish a colony in the Simi Valley, north of Los Angeles. At the time, this area was sparsely populated and sufficiently remote that the cult did not have to worry about the prying eyes of outsiders. By the autumn of 1926, she had convinced Clifford Dabney to purchase and transfer to the cult 10 hilly lots of land in an area of the valley called Mortimer Park. It was undeveloped and consisted of hills, sand, and a lot of rocks. It was, without question, the worst place in the valley to build houses, but that was exactly where May intended most of her followers to live. But not all of them, of course. Many of the families remained in the homes where they already lived. And naturally, May and Ruth had no intention of living in the rough, rugged valley, but they did maintain a cabin there for when they attended cult events. Their cabin was called the Watchtower. Clifford Dabney also had a cabin in what cult members began calling The Work, which was short for the work of God. Initially, Grade 11 followers camped out in tents. The winter of 1926 took a toll on them, though. They used fires for heat, lanterns for light, and had to carry water in buckets from some distance away. Only dirt roads traveled into the valley, connecting it to the outside world. By 1927, work began on shelters and cabins. May contracted with the Hammond Lumber Company to provide the necessary wood. They extended credit to the Blackburns, which of course turned out to be a terrible idea. They were forced to sue them for payment in 1929 and were still suing them in 1933. The cabins slowly came together, as did the Golden Throne Temple, a white 
crescent-shaped four-room building that towered over the other smaller structures. Through the main doors, a visitor to the temple found himself in a long living room that was illuminated by stained glass windows. At the far end of the room was the inner shrine, which held the Lord's furniture set, which was intended for use by the Messiah, who would appear after the cult had undone the damage to the Tree of Life. The most prominent piece of furniture was a massive throne that weighed more than 500 pounds. It was built with gum wood and was embossed with gold leaf. It was so heavy that it took eight men to carry it into the building. The throne's design, May claimed, had been given to her by, of course, an angel. Other items in the Lord's furniture set included a large couch, upholstered with gold satin, an overstuffed gold satin chair, and a seven-foot-tall dresser with three mirrors. A variety of cult props were also stored here, like a lion's head, and a variety of knives for sacrifices. The temple also held a long, narrow dining hall for cult meals. Next door to the temple was May and Ruth's watchtower, and to the north were the stables where they kept the sacred animals and the animals used for sacrifices. Near the stables were the cabins for cult members, which were generously described as simple. These structures perched rather precariously on the hillsides around the valley. They were furnished with water from a large water tank that sat on a dome-shaped rock up above them. There were also three springs in the area. The cabins also shared a single post office box at the post office, which was 12 miles away. I'm assuming that no one had ever promised the new members a life of luxury. Well, May had high hopes for the colony. In addition to the cabin, she hoped to build a much larger printing facility, knowing that she would need to provide every person on the planet with a copy of the Great Sixth Seal when it was finally completed. Um, by now, it was now two years overdue. She also hoped to build, quote, the great argumental parlor of the interview of the world, where, quote, all denominations, doctors, lawyers, clergymen, scientists, and professors can gather together to discuss the great sixth seal. She also planned to build a sunken garden, playground, tennis courts, and a swimming pool. But of course, none of that actually happened. It's hard for many of us to believe how the nuttiness of the Great Eleven attracted so many people to the cause, but it did. May and Ruth gathered many followers and demanded tributes of money and property from them so they could finance and continue the great work. Many of the cult members' experiences with the Great Eleven, though, ended in tragedy and death. Frances Turner, the sister of Great Eleven member Margaret Sands, was paralyzed and unable to speak when her sister brought her to May, hoping for a miracle. In mid-March 1928, May had Francis taken to the commune in the valley. Inside one of the cabins was a newly constructed brick platform that was about five feet high. Chicken wire was suspended over the platform's surface, creating an opening of about 18 inches. Hot bricks from a nearby stove were placed on top of the chicken wire, effectively turning the platform into a broiler. Frances was then placed on the platform, which was supposed to ease her suffering. May required the entire colony to be evacuated during the treatment. The last thing her followers saw was Frances lying on the platform under the hot bricks, coughing. The treatment lasted for two days. To keep the oven hot, cooling bricks were changed out periodically with hot ones. Frances Turner's condition made it impossible for her to speak or scream if necessary. Needless to say, the cure didn't work. She died two days later. According to William Blackburn, it was peaceful, but 
we'll never really know if it was true. Her official cause of death was, quote, leakage of the heart, and the death certificate was not signed until five days later. No coroner ever examined the body. Her estate was sold a year later, and, well, you can guess where the proceeds from that ended up. No real investigation of Frances Turner's death would ever occurred, but May did have the brick oven dismantled. The bricks from the oven that literally cooked a woman to death were used to make a pathway to one of the cabins. In the end, it would not be the weird claims and accusations of sex scandals, animal sacrifices, disappearances, bizarre rituals, or mysterious deaths that would bring down the Blackburn cult. It would be something as boring as civil suits for fraud. By July 1927, Clifford Dabney was nearly broke. He'd written checks to May valued at over $21,000 and at her command had purchased all the land for the colony and had received $500 for food and a shack in the hills. The oil man and his wife were now dependent on May for a living. He didn't understand how he'd gotten to this point. He was an intelligent man from a respectable and wealthy family, yet his ambitions and hopes had blinded him to the absurdness of everything that May had promised him. He had nothing left and May still demanded money from him. Reality set in for Dabney on July 31st when he took his car into a garage for repairs and was unable to pay the $191 bill. The mechanic waved it off and told him to pay it another day, but two years later, Dabney would be in small claims court after failing to pay that bill and having only 15 cents to his name. Enough was enough. He and Alice were finished with the grade 11. He told May they were leaving, but she refused to let him go. God, she told him, still has a place for you here. But Dabney didn't know she was serious until January 1st, 1928, when he was summoned to the colony. He arrived to find that May had somehow gotten a Richfield Oil Company lease that belonged to him. He owned the rights to a field that the company paid him $400 each month for, all of which he had been donating to the grade 11 for years. Well, May told him that an angel had directed him to give her the lease. If he didn't, quote, death will surely come upon you. Upset but terrified by the threat, Dabney agreed to sign over the oil properties. He begged her, though, to allow him to keep the payments for a while until he could get back on his feet. Well, to his surprise, May agreed and asked him when the payments were made each month. Dabney told her, which was a big mistake. Her promise had been too good to be true. Each month on the day of the payment, May came to his house and rode with him to the offices of the Richfield Oil Company. He received his check, endorsed it, and handed it over to May, leaving him with nothing. Well, why did he go along with this for as long as he did? Well, according to Dabney, he remained in the cult only because he feared what the other cult members would do to him and his family if he left. Yes, he had immersed himself in the occult teachings of the order for years, but grew disenchanted. He said that he became too scared to leave, and well, he may have been telling the truth. Eventually, reports surfaced of adherents who fell out of line, being beaten, attacked, pulled into cars at gunpoint, and, well, just disappearing altogether. But finally, Dabney gathered his courage and left. He wasted little time in starting legal proceedings against May and her inner circle, filing five civil lawsuits against them. After filing the suits, Dabney went to the police on September 15th to file fraud charges against the cult. He met with detectives and they listened patiently as he detailed his experiences with the Great Eleven and explained how May Otis Blackburn had taken him for all the money he had. When he was finished, there was silence in the room. They weren't sure what they could do to help him. Since he hadn't been mentally incompetent when the money was paid out, 
may technically hadn't broken any laws. Dabney was a victim of his own gullibility. But the captain did agree to send the detectives with him over to see the district attorney. If there was a case to be made against May, he could tell them. Dabney didn't go straight to the DA's office, though. He picked up his wife and several other former members to bolster his story. They met with District Attorney Charles Kearney on September 17th. He promised to look into things and get back in touch with them. Over the next week, detectives tried to interview other members of the cult, but had little luck. They were uncooperative, and most claimed to be satisfied with the Great Eleven and pleased with the progress being made on the Great Sixth Seal book. It's likely the cops would have given up completely if not for a call from an anonymous man who suggested the police look into the fate of a former cult member named Frances Turner. She had died under mysterious circumstances, they were told. He believed she'd been murdered. Well, the Turner investigation didn't go very far at first. The Ventura County Sheriff's Office told detectives that it had indirectly confirmed the paralyzed woman's death, taking a statement from May Blackburn, who said Turner died after a, quote, choking spell. The detectives made some calls, but came up empty-handed. The Turner woman was dead and buried, and there was little information to be turned up. But the whole thing bothered them, and after talking to their captain again about Dabney's weird story, they decided that a little publicity might stir things up. On October 4th, a story appeared in the Los Angeles Times with a headline that read, Cult leaders face charges. The article, on page 8, revealed that May and Ruth were charged with 15 counts of grand theft, that Dabney was the complaining witness, and that several people connected to the cult had disappeared. Another anonymous call followed, and this time, the story was a doozy. According to the unknown man on the line, there had once been a girl named Willa Rhodes in the cult. She was a priestess, and her parents, William and Martha, had also been in the cult. The girl had died several years earlier under strange circumstances, and her body had been hidden. Well, the police demanded to know where the body was hidden, but the caller then quickly offered the address of the Rhodes house in Venice. On October 5th, the captain and his detectives arrived at the Rhodes home. Martha answered the door and was told they had some questions about her daughter. They were allowed into the house, and Martha called for William. They asked the couple about their connections with the Great Eleven. At first, William was confrontational with the detectives, refusing to say anything other than that their membership in a religious organization hardly excused an invasion of their home by the police. The captain agreed, but explained that they were there because there seemed to be some mystery concerning their daughter's death. He told them, I must ask you to submit proof that she's dead, or at least tell us where the body is buried. Hearing this, Martha let out a loud moan, sank into a chair, and started to cry. William, still upset, threatened to throw the police out of his house. They didn't have a search warrant. He had every right to demand that they leave, but he didn't. Instead, he sat stoically next to his increasingly emotional wife as the police made their case against May Blackburn. It was Martha who decided to cooperate first. I'll give you everything, she said, if you promise not to desecrate my daughter's grave. But that, of course, was a promise they couldn't keep. Martha told them everything, but refused to say where Willa had been buried. She assured them her daughter's death had been a natural one. Why couldn't she be left in peace? But the police were not going to leave the Rhodes' home empty-handed. With great effort, Martha finally surrendered. Now, you can imagine that L.A. homicide detectives in the 1920s saw and heard a lot of strange things, but probably not as strange as this. William took the detectives into the bedroom and lifted the trap door in the floor. The police peered into the hole with flashlights. 
They found a pit that was four feet square and six feet deep. They could see the lids of the coffins, which were surrounded by dirt and stone. While the detectives were examining the hole, William disappeared but returned with shovels and pickaxes. He handed them to the policeman and then finally, overcome with emotion, left the room. He just wanted all this to be over. Martha wailed from the other room. If you do not believe that I have told you the truth, go ahead, she said. Desecrate the belief I have and dig up the body. And they did. Detectives dutifully stripped off their jackets, jumped into the pit, and started digging. As the men worked, reinforcements arrived at the cottage, followed by reporters and the inevitable morbid curious. They dug for nearly 30 minutes, and then chains were used to haul both coffins up and onto the bedroom floor. Police photographers captured the event, and photos of the recovery began appearing in newspapers around the country in a matter of days. Willis' coffin had not remained sealed. Water had penetrated the cracks beneath the coffin's lid, and it was now half filled with murky liquid. Inside, detectives found Willa's body wrapped in a white blanket. She was mostly intact, though, lying on her left side with her knees pulled up to her chest. The coffin containing the puppies was open next, and detectives saw the animals inside had been wrapped individually in white sheets and laid in a row. Both boxes were pulled out of the house and onto the front lawn. Reporters, policemen, and detectives gathered around the coffins. They stood by as photographers snapped photos, but they did not open the lid of Willa's casket. If they had, it likely would have sent William and Martha over the edge. Willa's body was loaded into an ambulance and taken to the Los Angeles County Coroner's Office. William and Martha were taken into custody. The circumstances of her death were unusual to say the least. It seemed impossible for the detectives to take the roads at their word that Willa, a cult princess, had died of natural causes. Well, the story of Willa Rhodes effectively blew up the cult. Bizarre stories about them filled the newspapers. May was alarmed and immediately hired an attorney named Thomas Cochran to represent herself and Ruth. After what must have been a lengthy discussion with his clients, Cochran contacted the district attorney's office and stated that while his clients refuted the charges of fraud against them, they were prepared to turn themselves over to authorities. He claimed that Dabney was given more than his money's worth when it came to May's time and attention. And besides, he reluctantly added, surely at May's insistence, his clients would soon reveal the great sixth seal to the public. The book would answer all the questions that had been previously considered unanswerable. Cochran then hired a private detective named Joseph Wavern to make a, quote, complete check of the cult's activities. This was a weird and complicated case, and he didn't trust his clients to tell him the truth. He didn't want any surprises, he told them. Unfortunately, surprises were coming. May and Ruth turned themselves over to the authorities at a hearing bail that was set for $10,000 for each woman, and they were placed in the county jail pending arrangements for bond. By October 7th, news of the investigation had gone national. The lurid details about the cult, including human sacrifice, scandals, swindles, and mummification, were a goldmine for the papers. Reporters snapped photos of Ruth, interviewed Clifford Dabney, and began tracking down members of the cult who'd left. All of them spoke about money that had been donated to the cult that had disappeared. And of course, there were still those pesky rumors about cult members like Francis Turner who had died, and those like Sam Rizzio, who had disappeared. Throughout October and November, the public was inundated with strange news about the Great Eleven. Newspapers rapidly reported stories of rituals, angels, orgies, human and animal sacrifices, mummification, temples, the apocalypse, and more. Dabney's fraud case got a lot of press. 
Reporters loved taking jabs at Dabney, portraying him as a rich sucker with too much money and too little common sense. Photographs were printed of Ward Blackburn and his curious mustache, of Willa before she died, and of the Lord's furniture set and the massive throne, and of Ruth, sometimes in her skimpy Egyptian dancing costume, and photos of every cult member they could track down. On October 16th, though, three of the counts against May were dropped. The authorities also decided there was insufficient evidence to hold Ruth and ordered her release. When she was taken out of her cell, she protested at first, saying she didn't want to leave her mother alone in jail, but cult members eventually convinced her to let them take her home. William and Martha Rhodes were also cleared of charges after the county's chemist failed to find any poison in Willa's body. The coroner now agreed that death was probably caused by sepsis, caused by the ulceration of her tooth. The Rhodes were allowed to make preparations for Willa's burial at a local cemetery, but when Martha asked that the remains of the seven dogs be returned to be buried with the girl, well, the coroner refused. The police were still trying to round up members of the cult, most of whom were now scattered at the wind. Those that remained of the colony were in terrible shape. The normally bad conditions there had worsened with May in jail and unable to dispense money for food. They were so dependent on May, they were literally starving. Finally, on October 30th, May was released on $10,000 bail. Her attorney told reporters that she would use her freedom to revise and regroup the first part of the great sixth seal so she could present the manuscript for her defense. In mid-November, Clifford Dabney, who had taken a beating in the press after telling reporters that he was afraid that May would have him killed with her occult powers if he refused to give her money, filed another lawsuit against May. This one was for $41,000 of property in Orange County, which included several oil lots. He said he had signed over the property to May and Ruth under threats of death. On December 4th, May was arraigned on charges of grand theft of approximately $28,000 from Glifford Dabney and Jenny Toy. The attorneys for both parties, Roy P. Dolly, requested that the court require the Great Sixth Seal to be produced saying that viewing the book was the only way to know if an angel was really dictating it. Well, May's criminal trial began on January 14, 1930. It ran for seven weeks with the defense calling cult members still friendly to May to the stand. Thomas Cochran wanted to prove that Clifford Dabney had not been defrauded and that he was a willing participant in and financial supporter of a church that he later decided he didn't like. The prosecution sought to prove that the Great Eleven was not a church at all. It was a fraud that May presented as a church for her financial gain. Good and innocent people had died as a result of her swindle. Deputy District Attorney Ferguson called both friends and enemies of May to the stand. Those who were friendly to May were portrayed as delusional, and those who were at May's enemies were encouraged to tell the jury just how much money they'd lost to the cult. Ferguson demanded that the Great Six Seal be produced, but of course it wasn't because it didn't exist. May, of course, claimed to be completely innocent. Her cult had been created by angels, and I'll bet you're not surprised to hear that Gabriel and Michael never took the stand. Without angels to blame for May's crime, the jury convicted her on eight counts of grand theft on March 2nd, 1930. Each charge had a potential sentence of one to 14 years in prison. May was to be sent to San Quentin, but was allowed to stay at the Los Angeles County Jail pending her appeal. It took another year for the appeal to get all the way to the California Supreme Court, which overturned the original verdict on the grounds that the evidence relating to the cult's bizarre activities 
had no bearing on the charges of grand theft. And with that, May Blackburn was a free woman. Neither May nor anyone else ever faced criminal charges for the deaths and disappearances connected to the cult. Witnesses had vanished, evidence was lost, and the authorities were so afraid of violating the cult's religious freedoms that they ended their investigations. Willow Rose had not been poisoned, probably, and though no one could rule out foul play for certain, neither could they find any evidence of it. There was some talk of charging the Rhodes or others with improper burial or failing to report a death, but they opted not to follow through with it. Given the limited forensic tools available at the time, the state had little hope of finding anything actionable in the deaths of anyone connected to the cult, and none of those who disappeared were ever found, dead or alive. The divine order of the royal arms of the Great Eleven had managed to prove itself immune from destruction by the authorities. To those who remained at May's side, it must have seemed as if she and Ruth really were being protected by angels. The law couldn't ruin them, but, well... Publicity was an entirely different matter. Thanks to the newspaper stories generated by the events of 1929 and 30, new recruits to the Great Eleven effectively came to a halt. However, there were still many long-term members who stayed faithful to May, at least for a while. The Great Six Seal, of course, never appeared. The imaginary sacred work was never anything more than a collection of notes posing as a book. However, May did go on to publish a book in 1936 called The Origin of God. In it, May abandoned most of her former prophecies and ideas, including references to Solomon's lost measurements, gold mines, mansions on hills, healing, resurrecting the dead, and the 11 queens. Essentially, it's a book about how the whole world is tied together through harmonics to the invisible and the underlying properties of the universe. Hmm. It certainly isn't as exciting as her original craziness, which is probably the reason that so few cult members remained at her side by that time. May and the cult slowly deteriorated in the years that followed. By 1948, she announced to the congregation that she had left that God was tired of Los Angeles, the bottomless pit of sin. She warned that the city's destruction was imminent and the only hope for the Great Eleven was to escape to Lake Tahoe. Well, May never made the trip. She died of heart failure on June 17, 1951. Her husband and stepbrother Ward died two decades later on June 24, 1975 from lung cancer. He had no one left. His corpse was donated to science as a medical specimen. Ruth divorced and married again in the 1940s and 50s. After her mother died, she and a handful of the last remaining cult members moved to Lake Tahoe. Between 1955 and 1970, using at least four variations of her real name, she bought up numerous parcels of real estate, but it wouldn't last. In time, she returned to California and the Great Eleven came to an end. Ruth died on December 19, 1978, in Sacramento, bringing an end to a chapter in the bizarre history of Los Angeles. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, 
we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. I think I've had these for a while, though. I'm not mad about their run, I guess. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. All right. Okay. You good to go? Sure. All right. Thanks for tuning in to the American Hauntings Podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. We are now in season five of the podcast, Haunted Hollywood. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Mr. Troy Taylor. Do you think anyone's still listening? No. <laughs> no. I, 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 after that. We're just uh, doing it for that, ourselves. Yeah, I, I, that's what I'm thinking, too. This a- gonna as this just kept going, I kept thinking... No one will even hear I us think discuss they'll, this. They'll, if so. the, the true Maybe devotees, they'll come back later. Well, they'll batch so. it, right? You do it sure. in three parts, you yeah. know? So yeah. three drives to work or the well, gas station. Well, you know, the you thing do. was is I could have made this a two-parter, but I felt like if I made it a two-parter, and believe me, I cut a lot of stuff out. Sure. <laughs> and I thought if I make it a two-parter, then we're going to drag this season out even longer. And yeah. I already don't know where it's going to end <sighs> for sure. I know. So I thought, I can't make this two parts. Well, I have I have questions about that, but I, I we're going to dive into it. Before, okay. before we do it, let's do our housekeeping. Yeah, yeah, What, yeah. what, what, yeah, what do you we, got We do have up? a lot of stuff coming up. You got um, a shit ton of stuff coming up. I know. Up. Yeah. I, keep, I keep telling people, go check out uh, dinnerandspirits.com or uh, ghosthunts.net, mm-hmm. um, which is the rest of our summer stuff. Ghost hunts, dinner events, river road tours. Great but, domain names, by the way. But oh, thanks. Yeah. Um, but the fall events are just now starting to come up on the schedule. Mm-hmm. So that's the prime time. Um, yeah, we usually wait till about the middle of June, which where we do, literally just got there. Yep. Uh, so we wait till the middle of June, and then we start putting a lot of that stuff up. So um, if you're not seeing it yet, uh, keep an eye out for it because it will be coming up very soon. Uh, I'll probably just start posting stuff in waves. We'll put up river road tours and then, you know, then our uh, dinners will come up. We'll start putting up the ghost hunts and things and that'll run through the rest of the year. And, you know, now is the time to start making plans. I know it seems early, but it's not, out. especially this year, because people are just, I mean, we've added as much as we can, They're but eager. people are anxious and eager to get out and do stuff. Yeah. So I know I am. Yeah, I know it. I know it. So, I mean, people are starting, you know, people are like, they'll ask me about, oh, does this have, do you have enough spots left for this group of six on this thing and yeah what we do today and then a week later i get an email from them oh i'm I'm trying to sign up for that and i can't i'm like yeah because now it's sold out and that's you you waited too long so it can happen so we we tend to try to steer people toward that stuff when they know it's coming up but you know we still have summer and we've still got summer ahead and there's a lot to do and don't forget um in our last episode we announced a deal we have for podcast listeners only 10 percent off any tickets you buy for the alton hauntings tour or the Weird Chicago Tours this summer. That's AltonHauntings.com, WeirdChicago.com. When you make a reservation for any of those tours, just use the promo code HOLIDAY, and you'll get 10% off 
any number of tickets that you want to buy. Um, this is just for our podcast listeners. So mm-hmm. we're I, not offering this out. I'm not posting it on Facebook anywhere. It's just for podcast. I'm trying listeners. to, I need data. So please use this, <laughs> this promo code holiday. Yeah. So, and also I think that probably a lot of you've heard about it by now, but I have a new book coming out very soon. Um, it's going to be the first in the hell mm-hmm. hath no fury books. Uh, my, collection of uh, 13 tales of female predators, prey, sinners, spirits. Uh, so it's, um, it's a fun, it's a, it's been fun to work on. It's a fun project. There's going to be, I, 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 I'm saying this in a, in a positive manner, but I think there's going to be a lot more to <laughs> this series than just a book, but we're just going to leave it at that for now. Mm-hmm. Um, I do, you know, a dinner thing on this particular series. In fact, I have one coming up in mid August, but, and I'll have it again in the fall. Uh, but, um, I, hopefully there may be even more than that. So we'll see. Did you let but, Lisa do the forward to this book? No, no. I feel like that'd be perfect. <laughs> I know, right? So and she's not here yeah. to yell at me. Anyway, all of the stuff that you, um, are hearing about, you can see or go to from our main website, which is AmericanHauntings.net or, you know, see any of the social media pages mm-hmm. or whatever. And you can get autographed books and, you know, get your discount on the tours and all that stuff. Take advantage of it. We This is something that we really haven't done, but I thought it'd be kind of fun for the summer because yep. people are trying to get out to do new things and, and do, you know, old things that they haven't been able to do in a while. Right. So uh, I wanted to throw that out there and, and um, hopefully, you know. Save you a couple of bucks. I hope I You're remember. Take a tour. I hope I remember how to interact with people, <laughs> like strangers. At least. Well, you know, I, friends I've, I've seen. seen but... Yeah, I've been lucky. I've been doing a lot of events. I mean, I've been doing events since last summer. So, mm-hmm. you know, we were able to do a lot of things because you know our groups were not huge, kind of thing. But uh, I'm not sure yet how I'm going to feel. Like, say at the conference, yeah, of all those people there, I don't know if I'm going to, oh, you boy. know freak out or not so you know you'll probably freak out yeah probably it's okay we have rooms for that right that's true uh all right let's dive into a listener review here (laughs) so this one is from oh boy scooter history geek it's titled love the history behind the haunting with all the stories out there you don't know what is fact and what is just pure fabrication i really like the fact that you have put in all the research i started with the first episode and now on the limps i am hooked well, thank you. That really means a lot. Cool. And I like that if you start with the first season, you get kept going. Like, yeah. that shows dedication. Yeah, it does. And I promise it just gets and, better from there. you know, and a bit of, you know, self-sadism, Yeah, too. there's got to so, be some, um, yeah, some, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you hate part. yourself a just little a little to have listened to the first season, but that's okay. We exactly. Exactly. Okay. Um, we'll start off with some random stuff here. So we went through a lot of cult names last um, episode, and I didn't even include all the ones that you talked about, the monologue <laughs> and all that. So I got curious, and I was like, is there a random cult name generator out there? Because I was like, I, I feel like this is kind of what's going on, and there was, oh, yeah. and there was also like a secret society codename generator. That's I funny. just I wanted to to talk about a couple of my favorites here real quick. <laughs> um, there's the Green Scholars of Robot History, uh, <laughs> Crimson Devotees of the Numinous Tabernacle, the Byzantine Sanctuary of the Yellow Hand, which actually that's really pretty like. cool. It yeah. is right. Yeah. Uh, Heralds of the Almighty Savage Chantry, <laughs> and then the Deranged Children of the Hidden Awareness. Uh, those are just like some of my favorites that popped up um, whenever <laughs> I, I toss the shit in there. So yeah, so I like. That and that's really fun. Um, before we dive into what is probably uh, easily the longest monologue you've, it is, you've ever done, it is. It was brutal. I mean, it was, I'm this sure was, it was brutal. Well, so it took me uh, two nights to do this outline in particular. How long did it take you to record this? Do you know, or, or to write this? I guess I'm sorry. Um, do you remember? No, not off the top of my head. No. Uh, okay. I, mean, 
It took me. Yeah, it took me a long time to record it, though. That right. I do, that well, I do know. That I'll find <laughs> yeah. out in, in yeah. about a week. <laughs> yeah. um, so with this, so there's something specific about this story that I feel connected with you because that about the story that connected with you because this story. Of course, it has a lot of detail. All your stories have a lot yeah, of detail. Yeah, and it's though, got but, so much more detail but, than even what I could put but in But that's this. the thing is all these – a lot of the stories you tell have a shit ton of detail, and you pare them down so, so much. What was it about this story that you that you felt, okay, I'm going to go over the top and do so, – there's something – that connects you to I the know. story, and I'm trying to figure I know, out what and it is. I don't, I don't know what it is. There are just so many layers to the story, and I think the the whole thing with Willa Rhodes, um, I ran across that story the very first time was in like mid-90s maybe. I had this book that was a collection of photographs and handwritten notes that this L.A. homicide detective had put had collected over the years while he was working for the police department, mm-hmm. and um, it was it was photos that he had taken and all the notes that he wrote that went along with them and explained what they were, and there are some really really gruesome crime scene photos in there. Sure, and he has a section of the photos that were taken when they unearthed her body at the house including the pictures of them bringing the coffins outside into the yard and then a photograph of her on the autopsy table at the morgue. I wasn't sure which, I, I Googled it, but I couldn't tell what was and real he put, and what wasn't. No, yeah. it's, um, and so he put just a paragraph about what it was, about this cult, the, the Blackburn cult and that and this girl. And I just got really interested in it and it really had a hard time finding information for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, it's gotten easier over time. I mean, because you know, our we have a lot more access to research than we used to have. Sure. And for whatever reason, this story and I, I didn't, I didn't really know what to do with it for the longest time. So it ended up in taking up serpents, and I ended up in that book. Yeah. And I, the detail in it, it's it's easily the longest story in the book. Um, and I just, I, I really had to. I mean, I cut this thing down, and it's still. At least in what I it's gotta be at least an hour of monologue. Yeah. I don't even know how I'm long so it ended up. I'm so curious about what you cut out now. Oh, there's a lot. Like I said, I gotta buy this damn book. There's a again lot of detail. The there's a lot of detail because um there were other people, and I do I mentioned that sort of in passing, but there were other people who disappeared and other people who died and other people who crossed, you know, May and she got rid of them, you know. So there was there were other people yeah. involved, so it, it just I couldn't include them all, so I had to stick with just the main ones. No, the, okay, that's so, fair. Yeah, I just yeah. I could tell like you don't put this much time and focus and attention <laughs> detail into something unless it really uh, you know connects with you somehow. And I I liked the story; I thought it was very interesting. It's, it's but... just a fascinating story. It's it, it's a it's a time capsule of 1920s LA, mm-hmm. and this is just sort of the the perfect cult that just covers everything sure you know what i mean okay yeah yeah i mean it just there's so much about this particular one i mean it's the same way you ask me you know what it is you know why why the black dahlia why is that Mm -hmm. so interesting to you you know or whatever and so this is just a particular something about it just struck me as interesting yeah no i'm I'm, my main thing is that how in the world did she get people to believe this well that's going to be one of the questions i ask you (laughs) i just i I can't wrap my head around it i'm just i'm trying to get 
a peek inside your brain. What I'm really trying to do is get sound bites for the upcoming trial that is inevitably <laughs> going to happen. I'm just trying to help the prosecution um, in any way that I can. So October 7th, 1929, great time to be alive in America. Um, body of 16-year-old Willow Rhodes found buried beneath her adoptive parents' home. She'd not been murdered, but the illegal burial got the attention of authorities, and that's kind of how all this shit starts. Yeah, it's kind of snowballed after that. Yeah, been buried for three years, mummified, uh, thinking she could be brought back to life. We'll come back to that. Let's talk about the divine order of the royal arms of the Great Eleven, which, again, just seems like... You just a random generator. A random name. cult generator name. It's inspired by a single verse in the book of Revelation. Ele- um, what is it? Verse 11, chapter 3? I don't no, remember. Chapter how this 11, goes. verse 3. Yeah, a yeah. Catholic school, nine years, I don't remember. Uh, to be precise, uh, quote, and I will grant my two witnesses power to prophecy for 1,260 days, end quote. The two that the cult believe were a mother, uh, May Otis Blackburn, and her daughter, Ruth. So this begins in 1922 in uh, LA's Bunker Hill area, which when I think of Bunker Hill is definitely a very yeah, different no, no. picture of what <laughs> no, I'm sure is, yeah. is going on there. Uh, May and Ruth began to receive revelations, they claim, that came directly from the angels Gabriel and Michael. How convenient. They were dictating a book that would reveal all the secrets of the universe. When it was completed, the seventh seal would open. The book would be called The Seventh Trumpet of Gabriel, although May later changed <laughs> it to The Great Sixth Seal. You know, is it six? Is it, is it 6.2, seventh, whatever, you know. the newspaper- Not that it matters. <laughs> Not- she never wrote anything. Yes, yeah, alert she doesn't fucking finish it uh the newspapers called them the blackburn cult which is smart you know it just saves on you know typing and ink and all that um the great 11 referred to a proclamation by may that after the apocalypse the world that remained would be ruled by 11 queens from mansions located on olive hill in hollywood it's actually kind of badass like (laughs) i I like that idea we talked about like female cult leaders back you know before the last episode and um yeah i kind of i kind of like that Let's talk about the early years. So 1909, they're living in Portland, Oregon. Ruth started acting around the age of 11, wins a contest and is named the prettiest girl in Portland, landing her a movie role. May then has a brilliant idea. Like, why not start my own movie company called Starlight Film Company? Uh, the films, as well as a new home and her car, had all been financed by May's blackmail schemes. And there's a lot of, again, I had, sure. could not get into all the details. Right, right, right. Yeah, she ripped a lot of people And all of her off. earlier husbands and all that stuff. Right. So. Well, I, I do appreciate that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Things started to heat Something up. Something had to be cut. <laughs> sure. So things started to heat up in Portland. They sold everything, moved to L.A. in 1918. Hard to get into the movie biz. You know, who would have known? So May spent a lot of time sulking in the house, reading the Bible. Never a good combination. No. Um, Ruth makes some money as a dancer. She marries, divorces. Then she meets a man from Indiana named Arthur Carl whom she reveals these details about the book to. So, claim this book would literally make the world stand still and explains the origins of the universe, the purpose of man's existence, the nature of God, and how to find hidden treasure. So they're just really, like, hitting a lot of different... Right, right. Just kind of spreading them. There's a shotgun approach, basically. Um, said that most of the Bible was metaphorical, but their book would explain everything. <laughs> so Ruth basically blackmails Arthur, uh, being his feelings, into getting her money to stop dancing and finish the book. She's pretty much like, look, I need money to finish this book. If I can't do that i'm gonna have to go back to dance with other dudes and so he gives her more money gives her more money um arthur's father eventually gets involved may eventually calls arthur's mother and threatens to kill him if he doesn't like back off he's eventually fired from his job for not repaying the loans and so he's like you know what fuck it i'm gonna go join the army does what he has to do this section i've called uh back to portland they go um parentheses keeping it in the family so among their first recruits were William, Matilda, and Ward Blackborn. That's the mom, the stepfather, and stepbrother, uh, respectively. 
you went on to explain what this uh, book is about at a very high level, <laughs> and I'm not going to dive into and all again, that. And again, more detail, but sure. I had to really cut that out. Too. Right. But I do want to do one quote. You said, the queens would not be lonely either. The angel Gabriel would designate 11 kings of every queen, a harem that would that may or may not have included the current husbands of the designated women. You know what? It's about time. You know what? Let, let the women have their time, get their harems. I'm down for that. I'd be a part of one. I'd be, I'd be, I'm here for it. Um, so they're still able to get about 70 to 100 followers at the start. Again, how? I, I mean, I just don't understand. That's what I'm trying why to ask you. In the world, I don't know. I mean, I, I keep saying that, that I don't have any idea how she could have gotten anyone to believe any of this. And, you know, and I made a note there that said that, you know, that half of them didn't even know what she was talking about, mm-hmm. but they thought, well, she must know something. So they just sort of went you, along with it. You said many of them admitted they had no idea what Ruth was talking about <laughs> with their weird beliefs. They just trusted that she knew what she was doing, which has a lot about the power of May's personality or their own desperation. So we tend to think of cult followers, at least I do, as, you know, people lost, down in their luck, yeah. whatever. But... And maybe that is true to some extent, but it seems like she was getting – you talk about like a lot of blue-collar workers. And so I am trying to figure out like who are these types of people that that fall for this? I mean – it's like we talked in the last episode. You're talking about a a lost generation of people out there looking for something to Mm -hmm. believe in, you know, and – for whatever reason, this struck their fancy. Could they I mean, find something free to believe in? Well, you would think, but that and that's part of her problem at the beginning is that she's not able to raise enough money because all she's attracting are, you know, the poor, uneducated, poor, yes. you know, QAnon types, right? So it's you know people with just no brains at all. She got to up that clientele. She needs she needs some you know wealthy. Other people. And she fucking finds them. Yeah, and she finds them. Yeah. And so, they, you know, and we'll, start gonna, investing in right. the cult. And so we'll get to that. And so May May marries her stepbrother, Ward. Yeah. Um, he has five-inch fingernails. He's a pedophile. He's 20 years May's junior. Sounds like a fucking catch. Yeah, you ought to see a yeah, I see the picture. I did see a guy. picture okay. of him. Um, yeah, his mustache was horrendous. Uh-huh. Um, but it works out because May is kind of also into little girls, as we see. Um, once they're married, uh, she was now May Otis Blackburn, priestess of the Black. I'm sorry, Blackburn, priestess of the Blackburn cult. So this section I've titled uh, "Back to L.A. and Bye Bye Sam." So they <laughs> yeah. re- they return in spring of 1924. Ruth marries a 17 year old Italian from Chicago in Chicago, um, <laughs> named Samuel uh, Rizzio. And he was, he's a bad boy, essentially. Sure. They're, they're, the whole family are trouble. Right. Um, so they may needs a bigger spot to grow and attract a basically rich followers. So she finds a 10-bedroom home to rent and immediately starts illegally converting it into an apartment <laughs> building, which I just love. For the cult. Like just, All living because, again, like we talked about in the last episode, you got to keep everybody together. And that later yes. she has problems with that. People start getting scattered out because she doesn't have a place to put them. Right. And that's why she then tries to build a commune and all of it. But, mm-hmm. you know, all of that kind of stuff is, you know, that's what happens. So Warden William opened up a printing press or a print, printing company. We talked about this before, but like cults have to get the word out. And I think like right. the, the pamphlets and flyers like tend to be a big kind of thing. Like they're getting that written literature is a trope that we see all the time. So like if you don't have people trapped in a compound and can't like Jim Jones it over the speaker, <laughs> yeah, then you like push yeah. out the written literature right. and papers and stuff. She also threatens to punish anybody who leaves. Um, Sam is eventually fed up and leaves after a violent altercation with Ruth. Um, 
Well, there's a little. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you don't know exactly. Yeah, so. I'm gonna say he didn't what, just. What leave. do you What do you think? What do you think actually happened? Well, they killed him. I mean, he you was really never that... seen again. Okay. I mean, his family. I mean, his family was all right there, and they were really tight knit bunch. And they never saw him again. I mean, so after you think they really night, did Oh, yeah, him? they killed him. Oh, well, I don't know. I don't him, know I guess, if they, but... they probably didn't poison him, but they definitely killed him. Huh. Okay. So he disappeared. And there were others. And I mean, she had people to do her dirty work for. Her. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, I had to, I had to leave some stuff I know. out, man. Uh, so, but he, she did have kind of a uh, hit mob of guys who would you know, wrangle people who left, uh, you know, and I talk about that a little bit more later on toward the end, all these people that the cops were trying to find all these people who'd left the cult and then now no one could find them. (laughs) They just disappeared. So I think there were, there were a lot of bodies on this bunch. Well, why didn't she should have just done the same thing with everybody's body. Then if she was good at getting rid of bodies, she should have just done that with all the, we'll talk about later how she ends up like getting caught with a lot of this, but she was good at getting rid of bodies. Yeah, but she couldn't get rid of, of, of Dabney because he was just too high profile. I guess so. I don't know. I feel like she's just slacking. But anyway, May moves out. Families come in. This section is called the Dabneys. So October 1924, May moves to a new home owned by one of her followers, um, oil man Clifford Dabney. Clifford was not yet a millionaire, but his uncle was. And he was interested in, quote, finding riches. And May offered just that. May offers a, she offers, for my, I don't know for sure, but maybe for one of the first times, a actual date of publication um, mm-hmm. for her book for February Well, that's the only way she could hook him. Right, right, yeah. right. It's just a little bit out of reach, but, right. like, you know, enough to keep you kind of hanging on. But to make it seem like, you know, oh, well, that's coming up close. I better, you know, I better get, sure. I better do this now. Well, so my favorite part is Clifford and Alice donate 5K, and then days later, she's like, give me another $500. <laughs> like, yeah. fuck you, dude. I, I just, <laughs> come on, you're do, he's doing it to himself at this point. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about the roads. So they're originally from Portland, but followed the Blackburns to L.A., William, Martha, and Willow Rhodes. William's a carpenter. Martha's deeply religious uh, Christian science camp welfare worker. They seem normal on the surface, but they're actually really, they're weirdos. They buried their son in the front yard before that. Uh, Martha says she can raise the dead. Like, they seem kind of like the perfect candidates for this yeah. kind of cult. Um, upon meeting, May, of course, took an interest in young Willa. As soon as they moved in, May gifted them with seven puppies. Seven puppies is not a fucking gift. <laughs> yeah, that is that yeah. is a nightmare. Yeah, and I is. love dogs, but like that's that's just I a that burden. Too. It's, it's yeah. t- seven puppies. I know. What are you doing? Yeah, I don't Willa know. becomes ill on Christmas Day, nineteen twenty-four. Instead of going to the doc or the dentist or whatever, they used the healing power of prayer, um, which yeah, didn't work. Really worked out well. I had a teacher in eighth grade. I won't go into names or anything, but um, she asked one of the students to go fill up her water bottle. And the student did that and then put chalkboard cleaner in the water bottle to try and poison her, which didn't actually poison her. But I went to a Catholic school, but this teacher was Christian scientist. And so she wouldn't go to the hospital. And so we were all just kind of sitting there as 12-year-old kids like, what's going to (laughs) happen? Really? (laughs) And and she ended up being fine. But we were like, this is really weird. We don't know what's going to (laughs) happen. She ended up being fine. But um, that was when I realized that there were different religions other than Catholicism. (laughs) Um, Eventually, Willa got worse. um, But even she kind of like accepted her fate. And then she was dead on New Year's Day. Well, I mean, it was easy to accept your fate if you think that you're going to die and be you're just going to come back anyway. I, I so, get I mean, And as a be chi- a, as a one child, of the 11 queens. Sure. As a so. child, that totally makes sense. As the parent, as the adult, like, that's fucking well, stupid. But, well, but they were just as brainwashed as she yeah, was. Yeah, but the children have the benefit of the doubt. Well, I don't know, but she was 16. So really, is that a... 
little child? No. no. Yes, yes. You're still stupid. At well, yes, still stupid but at still not that not enough that you should I, believe that. I know, but I mean, if everybody around you is telling you, like, hey, it's fine. Um, I don't know. Anyway, May explained that if her body was turned over to the authorities, <laughs> she would be dissected. Yes, and <laughs> unable to be resurrected. Like, of co- of course. Well, yeah, we can't turn her <laughs> yeah. over because yeah, she can't come back to life. They had to hide her body until the book was completed. They propped her up in a car between two followers, fucking weakened at Bernie's style. Exactly. Then they put her in a bathtub and killed her and killed her dogs and then put them in there with her, which mm-hmm. that's what really pisses well, me off. Well, but she would want those dogs in the afterlife. Okay. It's just like, okay. So I know. I'm not telling you it's a good is, idea. Is this an Egyptian <laughs> thing? None of this is good, a good idea. Well, so. you're going to. It's bad enough you give somebody seven dogs, but then you kill the seven dogs. Yeah. Like this, this is where I draw the line. Yeah. Um, eventually, they moved her to a sleeping chamber for five months till they decided to move the cult headquarters to Santa Monica. They decided to build a secret compartment at the rear of the house to hide Willa's body. A few months later, May instructed William and Martha to buy a two-bedroom cottage so they could move Willa's body again. She and the puppies are buried under one of the bedrooms, and a trap door is built. This trap door kind of sounds kind of fun. I'm not gonna lie. Um, like I love houses with trap doors and stuff, um, even if they lead to you know bodies my, my under dead the daughter's floor. body. Yeah. yeah. Martha goes to a druggist to get um, quote an unusual formula for embalming the dead. Um, she, so she only does stuff to the outside of the body, right? So not the, the inside. inside's still kind of going yeah. crazy, you know, doing yeah. what bodies do. Her parents lived in that cottage for three years. Was this? Do we know, was this under their bedroom? Or was no, this the I think it was bedroom? under the second bedroom. Okay, so as long as you're not sleeping but over still, your dead I mean, regardless, thing, it's not good. It's, so. Yeah, it's weird. I just wanted to know <laughs> where to draw the line at weird. But, okay, this next part I've, I've labeled the colony at Mortimer Park. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Um, I think so. Yes. Mortimer. Yeah, Mortimer, 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 yeah, Mortimer, Mortimer Park? Mortimer, okay. Yeah. So with over 100 local members, the Great Eleven were running out of room. They were spread out and under pressure from the weird and illegal shit that they were doing. Uh, <laughs> May established a colony in the Simi Valley, north yeah, of L.A.? Simi Valley. Yeah. Simi Valley. Um, by autumn of 1926, May convinced Dabney to purchase and cult uh, 10 hilly lots in Mortimer Park. Um, apparently that land, like, sucked. Like, there's a yeah. reason he was able to buy it. Was, it was, like, desert. Like, yeah. like most of L.A. was. Right. So. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so they had um, an event cabin they dubbed the Watchtower. Um, was this before? This was way before. Um, like, no. J- uh, no, that's the same time period as Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay, started. okay. Actually, they started before that. Okay, I was kind of wondering, yeah. Which no, they just called it that so they could watch over everybody in the work. Got um, it. Okay, yes, yeah. So Dabney also had a cabin that they called the Work of God. Um, cabins slowly came together, as did the Golden Throne Temple. It's, it sounds like it had crazy there's furniture. Some, yeah, there's some interesting pictures yeah. of these buildings, too. It, they sound yeah. kind of fun. Yeah, they're not. They're not. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, they're okay. definitely All right. not. Never mind. So, they're well, horrible. I'm just going to keep so, them how I have I mean, them you have to mind. remember, they built those themselves. I mean, we're not uh, talking about people with a lot of... I mean, sure, there were a few of them that were like carpenters and stuff, but mostly yeah. it was, you know, Jonestown kind Wait, of Are you saying these stuff. were mostly idiots that were? Uh, yeah. Oh, boy, yeah. what a surprise. Um, at this point, okay. At the, but okay. I, you got to, you can't, you can't not love something called the Lord's Furniture Set, though. Yeah, I it's, mean, it's amazing. It's giant furniture, I shit you not. It was giant furniture. Well, so <laughs> be, because... Because of because of everything that they did at this point with the Golden Throne Temple, this is where I wrote, at what point, we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, and now Lisa's here and I don't want her to yell at me, but what is the difference between a cult and a religion? Is it that one has the savior that's dead? Is it once no. they have political power? Every, is it once they have real every estate? Every religion began as a cult. So what's the difference? 
Well, there isn't one. I mean, eventually it just depends on how many people they That's have the that I follows wanted. it. I mean, there isn't one. I mean, because when, uh, you know, when the Christian church started, it was the cult of Mary. I mean, it was, or the, you know, the cult of Jesus. I mean, it was a cult. Uh-huh. The Christians were a cult when it started. They were described as a cult. But what, so, I mean, I question that a lot in, again, I refer you back to taking up serpents. That's a whole section of what's the difference. Yeah. Because there isn't one, because it's it's how you learn and adapt. I mean, how it changes. I mean, cults don't last. Mm-hmm. You know, they will not last forever. A religion will I mean, it just depends on the number of people and when it becomes a religion. I can't give you a set, you know, step by step numbers because it just. I want a guide I mean, and how to take I know, my cult. But to every a every every religion is a cult or started as a cult. Is there okay? So is there a negative connotation to cult, or am I just putting that on that? No, I mean, there's. A, I mean, the word has become seen as a a negative. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I I don't I don't know that it. You know, when they start, well, again, we, we get back to, you know, Catholicism starting as a cult of the Virgin Mary. Yeah. I mean, that's essentially what it was. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I mean, it, at some point it stopped being considered a cult. So we have a we have a negative way of looking at, you know, when we call something a cult, you know, and I, I'm sure there's a criteria that, that someone could give. I'm not that person. It's got to be a gray um, area. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, we have a... Oh, Lisa Com- has one. Wait, if you're gonna, you, if you- you're gonna talk, you have to use the mic. Yeah, yeah, please. I think that a cult is something that's separate from the civilization that it's within, and a religion is built into a civilization. So you are saying that a uh, that a religion never goes away, but it does if that civilization well, is true. overthrown. Good, good point. So there have been religions that have gone away, but they went away with the civilization. Cults yeah. go away. But the civilization didn't because well, it wasn't mainstreamed into. That's good. That's really so cults good. are more fringe groups, I guess. Yeah, not... I guess so. Yeah, that that totally makes sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. that absolutely. Makes I think sense. we solved it. I think we did too. Well, okay, they just cut like thirty-five minutes off of my good. projected good, time because we've already. This is like an hour and a half monologue, mm-hmm. so that's probably just as well. Col- have you ever met any cult leaders or any weird people like? We all that? have. Okay, but I wanted to know if you, you may not know it when you meet them, but yeah, I've met lots of people that have started their own religions so, over the years. This one time in this very room, we came back from after uh, a conference and Troy was sitting in a circle and I, I stumbled into this room and every, he was in the center and everybody else was sitting around him. And it was the first time somebody said paranormal Jesus. And I was like, holy shit. Yes, that makes sense. And you were wearing these weird Jesus sandals. And I was like, oh, boy, did I accidentally stumble my way into a cult? But I started to think <laughs> no. about it. I started to think about it more. And I said, is a cult leader, Troy, you are charismatic, but you hate people so much. <laughs> I'm, not I'm, people. I know you don't. But I was thinking. Just as a race. I know. I was, not as a, you know. A species. A species. I was, yeah, that's I was the right thinking, word. I was thinking, I was like, could Troy be a good cult leader? And I kept going back and forth. And I we talked about this a little bit downstairs when we were going to the bar. But I want your thoughts on I this. I could be the cult leader that no one really, you know, that no one really gets close to. That is just kind of seen in the distance. Who uh-huh. talks over the loudspeaker and passes on the words Jim of Jones wisdom. kind of thing. Yeah, but I'm not actually having any contact with the members <laughs> of the cult. I would just have to be the, like the guy in the tower. 
kind I, of thing. I like yeah. that. Just you just write your books and you put yeah. them out, yeah. and then everybody just sure. you, dissem- you have a lot of disciples to disseminate yeah. them. Yeah, you know, I I'd, okay, I'd follow you. Why not into the abyss? Let's just <laughs> see what happens. <laughs> Uh, geez. Okay. So this section I've titled the beginning of the end question mark. So July, 1927 Clifford Dabney is, he's nearly broke. He has basically 15 cents to his name. He'd written checks to May that were valued over $21,000, which I'm guessing back in 1927 money was a, a billion dollars. I don't know. I didn't, it was actually, a lot. Yeah. I didn't do the math, um, this time, but he's ready to leave. Um, but he still signs over some oil properties to May because he's Pretty much scared of the threat of death right, or, you know, right. whatever she kind of curse upon him. Well, the thing is, I mean, she keeps telling him these things and it makes it sound like that she's just putting a curse on them and saying, oh, if you leave, something bad's going to happen. But he's already seen how many people have left and have been beaten up or, you know, attacked, abused or have just literally disappeared. Mm-hmm. And I'm never seen again or, you know, put into an oven and cooked in the desert, you know. Yes. I mean, there's just a lot going on there. And he probably had good reason to be afraid. It's kind of like that Arthur, that guy that was, um, you know, seeing Ruth early on in the story. And, you know, he borrowed all that money and gave it to her. And then, you know, his dad went down there to try to get the money back. And she said, if you, you know, come around here again, we're going to kill your son. And he says, oh, she was just kidding. No, she wasn't. No. She wasn't kidding. Right. Um, yep. You don't Called come between out. You don't come between a cult leader and their money. Yep. Kind of like a, you know, mega church pastor and their money. Mm-hmm. Same thing. Yeah. I mean, they got to have those private jets. So exactly. The cops. God, are- if you're... <laughs> I'm not going to get into it. And I'm not going to get into the Please. movie. No, no, I can't remember the whole name of the movie, but it's something about uh, um, while well, you're drinking juice in the hood. And I can't think of it. It's a really, it's a good spoof. It's a really don't be funny. A menace while you're, don't be a menace while you're drinking juice in the hood. I'm, I met it, Marlon you, Rain, Wayans. Okay. I told you this. Well, he's yeah. got that, they've got that whole section about with the pastor. God wants me to drive a Cadillac, you yes. know? And that's it. I mean, it's, it's, that is, it's so funny because it's so accurate. Well, there's truth in every joke. That's what you makes know? him funny. Yeah. Because what's his face just died recently, the crazy faith healer guy that uh, Reverend Angley just died oh, recently. Okay. And, you know, he didn't uh, hit my radar. Oh. Yeah. He, uh, you know, um, you know, used to do that whole thing about, you know, how, you know, he, you know, had a private jet, had a private 747 and all this stuff. It's like, really? I mean, it goes right back to what we talked about before. There isn't a single thing these people are doing that are actually teachings from the Bible. Right. That they claim to live by. Yep. Well, they're not following any of them. Yep. You know, I've said it multiple times before. I have no Again, problem. I have no problem with Jesus. It's his yeah. followers that piss me yeah, off. Exactly, because they don't listen to what he says. Anyway, so. Amen. So the cops heard his story, uh, but they they didn't know what they could really do for him because they're pretty much like, bro, like you gave her this money. Like, <laughs> yeah, you, you're these not detectives insane. listen to this long story and they're like, um, they, and we're supposed to do what? Yeah, sorry, you got screwed here because you're an idiot. Sorry so. about you. Um, but an anonymous call telling them to look into the death of Francis Turner kind of changed things. Cops, uh, cops put out some something in the papers to stir things up. Then another anonymous caller talked about Willa, and so that should when, maybe look in these people's crawl. You know, space. look in this crawl space. So they kind of like show a, up. the neighbors John Wayne Gacy should have done. There's a strange smell coming from his coming crawl from space. everywhere. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. right. Like yeah. Uh, cops show up to William and Martha's home. Eventually, uh, eventually they cave, show them the coffins. Police photographers captured the event, and photos of the recovery began appearing in newspapers around the country in a matter of days. And then the story of the Willow Roads um, effectively blew up the cult. So yeah. 
Then there's the investigation. So May's own lawyer, Thomas Cochran, hires a, he hires his own PI. Is this a common practice to like? No, is, no. Is a lawyer? Or can, no, can, I don't think this, so. This, this guy lawyer, hires his PI because he doesn't believe a word that believe May tells him. So he doesn't want any surprises. So he hires a detective to just see how fucked up this group really is. Right. And he finds out that they're completely crazy and they've been you know, making people disappear yeah. and they've been, you know, claiming they're going to raise the dead. And, you know, the photo, all these photographs of uh, all of the, the giant furniture set that weighs 500 pounds. Yes. The throne, all this, yeah, all this stuff starts yeah. popping up in the papers and people just lose their minds. So reporters love taking jabs at Dabney, portraying, yeah. portraying him as a rich sucker with too much money and too little common <laughs> sense, which yes, accurate. That's accurate. Yeah, yeah, accurate. It's, it's yeah. not, yeah, it's not bad at all. May and Ruth are released on October 16th, because there's insufficient evidence to prosecute them. William and Martha Rhodes are also cleared of charges after no uh, poison is found in their daughter's body. Yeah. Um, shouldn't they have, like, they could have got charged on something else, though. If yeah, like, well, right? they were gonna, they were gonna charge them on um, illegal burial of a body, and they just decided it wasn't worth it. Wasn't it wasn't worth the yeah, shit. Yeah, because they, you know, they, they found May guilty, and then she appealed the case, and the judge throws the whole thing out and says that, you know, they should have never have brought all the weird. And this is, again, what we talked about in our last episode, that the police and the prosecution should have never brought in all the crazy stuff that the cult believed in because that had nothing to do with oh, the fraud, even though I think it does. But according to the judge, he didn't think so. So they threw the whole thing out. Yeah. But again, it's because everybody's so afraid to, you know, mess with people's religious freedoms that they end up with you know, 22 wives under the age of 12 and crazy stuff, but they don't do anything about it because it's, you know, oh, it's my religion. This yep. is what I believe, yep. you know? Um, and so, you know, it's just, I don't know. Sometimes I think that goes too far. Anything could be a church that doesn't or shouldn't be sometimes. I, I know. So, so mid-November, Clifford Dabney uh, files another lawsuit against May. The attorney for both parties, uh, Roy P. Dolly, requested the court require the great six seal to be produced <laughs> yeah. saying that viewing the book is the only way to know if the angel is really dictating it what what is what what is, what is that i don't get it like well he, his he, point is is that there is no book okay but if if there's a book then we need to see it because if she can produce this book that the angel michael and gabriel have been dictating right. to her then it will obviously show that it's the work of oh, okay angels and okay. but she can't produce the book because there is no book got it okay so, i was just i was kind of confused i was like okay, yeah. is this guy serious okay yeah. um the process well and then there's more detail here that i yeah, had to leave out she, but she I claimed that it. she gave the book to one of the cult members who <gasps> disappeared oh, um, no shit. yeah so they ended took, up beneath the house the book with them yeah exactly so uh so the prosecution desert somewhere the prosecution buried in a cornfield in kansas sought so. to prove that the great 11 was not a church at all it was a fraud that may presented as a church for her financial gain yeah, which it, we can say that about 90 percent of the churches of course, out there good so. and innocent people had died as a result of her swindle deputy deputy district attorney ferguson called both friends and enemies of may to the stand so without the angels to blame for may's crimes as you said uh the jury convicted her of eight counts of grand theft on may 2nd 1930 but a year later she's out uh due to an appeal overturning that verdict the authorities dropped their investigation for fear of, for fear of violating the cult's religious freedoms, like right. you, you just right. talked about. Yeah. Um, so the law couldn't ruin them, but publicity was an entirely different matter. The Great Six Seal never uh, appeared, but May did publish a book called The Origin of God. Um, I didn't even look 
for this no, anywhere? No, she trimmed everything out of it. It's not even really much of a book. I yeah. mean, she stops talking about... She leaves some of her stuff in, but she left out the queens and the... Oh, Solomon's, all the fun stuff? Solomon's lost measurements that find gold mines right. and all that all shit. All the important shit. Yeah, she took all that out and left it in. It's just this gibberish of her, you know, bizarre. It's like a manifesto. Yeah, pretty kinda. much. I mean, her bizarre, you know, beliefs and stuff that doesn't even make sense. I can understand why she had members of her cult going, we don't know what the hell she's <laughs> talking about, but she seems cool. I mean, that's pretty yeah. much what it boiled down yeah, to. Yeah, witchy woman. So, although she doesn't seem cool she, at all. She but. and the cult slowly faded over the years. She died of heart failure on June 17th, 1951. Ward dies two decades later from lung cancer. Ruth divorced, remarried. Um, after May died. <laughs> Several times. Yeah, after May died, Ruth and a handful of last remaining cult members moved to Lake Tahoe, but then eventually Ruth dies on December 19th, 1978 in Sacramento, thus ending this crazy fucking ride (laughs) of a story. It's nuts. The story's nuts. It is nuts. Um, Okay. There's... My brain needs a second to just process that, but (laughs) it is now time for our ghostwriter segment. So if you have a question or comment about the world of macabre, you can email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. This... Email is from Sarah. It is titled St. Louis Benton Park English Cave. Sorry, I cannot read this because I am old. Um, Okay. It says, hey, guys, I was recently introduced to your podcast by a friend of mine um, who knows I'm a major history and hauntings buff. I've been living in Benton Park for quite a while now and regularly walk my dog around the Lint Brewery. So I very much appreciated your series about the family in the neighborhood. The reason I'm reaching out is because I enjoyed uh, episode 20 recorded in 2018. It doesn't seem like a real year um, that they, um, oh, boy, uncovered since Drilling. Sorry, I really can't read. This is so small. Uh, it was pretty cool to see how the large cave uh, really, how, how large the cave really was, and it's not filled with the water as they thought. I also recently went on a tour uh, at the brewery at Cherokee Street, a block from my place, where they take you into the underground caves. They go pretty far back into the history of the building and mention that the caves were used to hide booze during the Prohibition area. Limestone is still scattered throughout the caves where they allow you to tour. Um, they still have the old pulley system intact that they used to expand the caves back in the day. The brewery is called Earthbound. They open in October uh, 2017 and still use underground caves to store their batches and to host private events. Hope this helps, and thank you guys for all that you do. Great show. And then she sent some links. Sorry, I have this screenshot of your email oh, in my gotcha. Evernote, okay. and it's so okay. small, and I tried to get the view bigger and it made everything else bigger except for your email. And I'm just, I'm old now. I'm just, I'm blind. Um, so thank you, Sarah, for that email. It really helps. Um, yeah, I just, cool. I just appreciate people like that listen to our show and then get like something out of it. It's like such a bizarre concept for me. Um, I just want to give a quick shout out to some of our most recent uh, Patreon subscribers. So thank you very much to Sarah and Sherry. We really couldn't do the show without you. And we really appreciate all your support. And after what has to be, God, an hour and 45 minutes oh at least. Oh, my God, I know. Um, I'm sorry. That's all I so, got, dude. So, Troy, this, is, this is on you, man. Okay. Well, guys, thank you for listening and for sticking with this thing because I know how long this episode turned out to be. Believe me, I was uh, I, I spent quite some time working on it. So, um, But thank you 
everybody who listened and everybody who has stuck with it for the episode and stuck with us for five seasons so far. This one isn't over yet. Yeah. Don't know when it will be, but it's getting, Probably it never. is getting closer. Is it? So, and I will tell you that uh, I do have the next two episodes planned. Okay. So if anybody's been waiting on some of the more spectacular murders to ever occur in LA history and the ghost stories left behind. More spectacular than is, like Black Dahlia? Yeah, yeah they are coming. Uh, so, uh, get ready for that in the next episode. And, um, anyway, thanks. Thanks for listening in. Leave us your reviews because as we've said before, we know that, you know, we, we did beg for all those reviews so we'd have a thousand, but now we don't, <laughs> Yeah, Cody says, no, I don't care, but we do care because care. it helps people find the show. So yes. thank you for that. Awesome. All right. Well, af- dude, honestly, after that, I'm just fucking. No, I'm just kidding. This episode of the American Hollies podcast is written by Troy Taylor. You know, I'm going to tell you by that. me, Cody Beck. Well, you're, you're just going to keep getting Orson Welles. Well, hope you're checking so you know. out the biweekly dose of history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. You can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere you listen to your favorite shows. See the website at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com for more info about the show, notes, photos, links, and more. And if you're a regular listener, we'll hope you take the time to review us on the apple podcast app and share the show with your friends neighbors relatives people you pass on the street whoever we couldn't and wouldn't do the show without you or orson wells if you're a fan <laughs> then you know also that american hauntings is not just this podcast it's books tours events and more and our main website is americanhauntings.net for those of you who write to us and tell us that you wish we posted shows more often, well, you can have that fresh content if you support the show on Patreon. It's not the only perk that you'll get either. There are discounts, shirts, stuff in the mail, all kinds of things. For those who don't understand how important our Patreon is to us, go back and listen to the first season of the show and then listen to this one or listen to these fucking old-ass Orson Welles commercials. Yeah, that's right. Patreon is what made it all get better and technology. So check it out at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. If you have any comments about the show, suggestions, Hey, you know what we need to have? We need to have what? One of what, our, one of what? our um, bonus episodes. What? We should have the whole peas commercial. I'm yeah okay yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I'm actually I'm, the the whole peas outtakes and maybe like Orson Welles can we do our commentary or like a live uh, yeah. reaction yeah. or something maybe my live reaction to watching it for the first time yeah you've never seen it I haven't really seen funny. it jeez anyway but, I mean it's you know I don't remember where hey tw- you know what I hope that this is in, introduced some people to Orson Welles. Yeah. Oh, yes. That's, no, really. That's Be- what, no, it, mm-hmm. seriously. Yep. I hope it has yep. because it is. Yep. He is someone whose work is worth following. <laughs> okay. All right. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, messages in a bottle, carrier pigeon, telegram, Orson Welles, whatever. Until next time. Goodbye. So long. See you later. Good night. Good night. Good night. We'll, we will uh, add a new one. Have no podcast before it's time. Oh, boy. All right. This was 40. Seven oh God. So On this- top of like a two hour.